Saints, and blessed Transfiguration Tuesday and Ash Wednesday Eve. Is that a thing? Well, it is now. Welcome to Thy Strong Word. Today is Tuesday, February 13th, and oh, it's also the eve of St. Valentine's Day. You're listening to the program where each weekday morning we explore the Holy Scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Today we take up Deuteronomy chapter 6, wherein Moses conveys a crucial message to the Israelites, stressing the significance of wholeheartedly loving the Lord with every aspect of their being. In this chapter, we also get the Shema, a key confession of faith that highlights the distinctiveness of Yahweh as the one and only true God. Then Moses directs the people to faithfully adhere to God's law, passing them down to their children and catechizing them in all aspects of daily life. Well, we're going to learn about that and a lot more as we get into Deuteronomy chapter 6. Well, whether you're coming to us over the air, online at KFUO.org, using the KFUO app, on a smart speaker, as a podcast, wow, there's so many ways, doesn't matter to me, I'm just glad that you're here. So settle in, open your hearts and your minds, we're about to begin. Thy Strong Word is graciously supported in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. LHF translates, publishes, and distributes books that are Bible-based, Christ-centered, and Reformation-driven. So when you get time, visit lhfmissions.org to learn more. Well, if you have comments, questions, concerns, complaints about today's show, I want to hear them. You can email me at pastorboo at gmail.com. You can find me on Facebook, just search for Phil Boo, or you can call into the show. Tell me right now, 1-800-730-2727. Even if you don't want to be on the air, you can leave your question with the, the nice person who answers the phone and they'll send me the message. But joining us this morning, it's the Reverend Terry Yar. He's the pastor of Our Savior Lutheran Church in Chillicote, Ohio. I think I pronounced that right. Uh, welcome back to the program, Pastor Yar. Uh, can, you, can you hear me okay? Yeah, I can hear you. Is, was I right okay. on Chillicote? Uh, that's not quite right. It's Chillicote. Chillicothe. Okay, so exactly like it looks, and I was trying to be too fancy with it. Okay, got it. <laughs> Chillicothe. Well, welcome back to the program. It. Yeah. How's life for you and the saints there at Our Savior? Well, it's it's been kind of an interesting year. Um, I just recently formally announced my retirement, um, but I'm still serving the congregation, and I will... I will for, I anticipate some time to come. So it, it's kind of a strange situation. <laughs> so life has gone a strange direction. Well, I'm sure the Lord has something great in store for you and for the congregation. And it's, you know, I, I hear a lot of Lutheran pastors, when they, pastors in general, I think, once they retire, they, they sometimes get as busy as ever. And it sounds like you're still willing to serve those folks. And so we're thankful for that. Well, I'm glad that you're here today. I'm glad that you're taking some time out of what I'm sure is still a busy routine to talk with us about Deuteronomy chapter 6. Um, I, I'm calling this episode uh, Catechize Your Children because that's one, not all of them, but one of the points being made in our text for this morning. Oh, you're shooting with my ammunition. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. We'll start us off in prayer and then we'll dive right into the text. Okay. 
Oh, Lord, our God, our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for all the gifts that you give to us, and especially for the enlightenment that you provide to us in Holy Scripture, the enlightenment that we receive through faith in Christ Jesus. We ask you, Lord, uh, for the gift of your Spirit uh, this day as we delve into uh, what you've revealed to your people, Israel, um, in the words of uh, Deuteronomy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, when we talked last time, which was, oh, yesterday, we covered the Ten Commandments, sort of a a redux, a a repeat of the Ten Commandments. Probably one of the places, if uh, if not the place, where we get the name for Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law. So we get this sort of concrete law written on stone. We heard about that. And now as we move into chapter 6... Moses is preaching in this sermon what to do with these commandments. And so I'm just going to go ahead and start, and we'll get we'll read the first three verses just to get the conversation going. Here we go. Okay. Chapter 6 from the English Standard Version. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that Yahweh your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it that you may fear Yahweh your God and you and your son and your son's son by keeping all of his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them that it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly as Yahweh, the God of your fathers has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. That's just the first three verses. Now, the chapter divisions throughout Deuteronomy are pretty dubious, if not just arbitrary. He's really just continuing. He's just given the Ten Commandments. And now he says, the Lord gives you these Ten Commandments because you need to go do them. But but you, you do them not because the Lord is a tyrant and just wants to dictate our lives, but because they're good for us. Uh, take us through this. Well, yeah, that's, that really is the point here. It, if you want to, to do good for yourselves and your families, if you want to live well, and I don't mean necessarily prosperously, but, um, but, uh, but lives that are, let's just say, in accord with God's uh, intention for you, um, then this is how you go about that. Uh, and, and, so you, and, you, and you begin with loving, loving me above above everything else. That's, that's what he sets before them. Um, and it, it, since we're on the first three verses, I, I, I did a little uh, checking, and, and I'm reminded that Jesus himself referred to this. Um, it's recorded uh, three times for us in the New Testament Gospels. Um, Jesus uh, uh, speaking these words, um, virtually quoting uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Um, and and in in response, um, at least on one occasion, in response to uh, a request for uh, for information about which is the greatest commandment, and um, and, he's, and so which is the greatest commandment? It, you know what's interesting about that is that this is not listed among the ten. The ten commandments are a separate list. This is something else, but it's not different. It's 
really the essential nature of living uh, according to law, uh, according to God's will. Well, and we also see that there is a condition to entering into the promised land. A lot of folks, they look at this and they say, oh, well, you know, God promised them the promised land, so that, you know, they're going to go and they're going to get it. And while that's true, tangentially, <laughs> the condition is to be successful in this land to which I am sending you, that you will dispossess, but not you, but really me, you need mm-hmm. to live in a certain way or things will not go well with you. And, and if we took that and extrapolated it and tried to say, well, what does this mean for us today? It is this. Your salvation is not contingent upon you being perfect. But striving to live the way God wants you to live means that your life will go long in the land which God has given you now. And also where we are going is about living according to God's will. The new heavens and the new earth will be confirmed in that righteousness. But if we rewind all the way back to here, Moses is just telling them the truth. You cannot expect God. You are, he's not trying to convince them to be saved. They already believe in God. They already know that God is their rescuer. He's saying, act out that faith in a real way. That this God that's bringing you into this land says, these are the ways you must live. And so you're right. These are, these are, these are core principles of what it means to be a child of God. Yes, yes, and and embedded in that, and you made reference to it earlier, but embedded in that is is that promise that this is this is how things will go well. What's striking about that is that if you read through the history of ancient Israel from from this point onward, um, from the, almost to essentially from the time that they that they began to conquer the, the promised land, uh, they began to fall short. On, on following God's commandments, and 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 one of the consequences is that, that they began to be they began to suffer for it. Right, and we see that, and we and we already God also knows that we shouldn't make any mistake. You know, as He's sending them in, He knows their weaknesses, and this is why we have such an emphasis here. That when things go, I mean, and it's implied, but when things go awry, it's not because God has stopped loving you. It's not because God um, has abandoned you, but it's because you're reaping the consequences of your sin. And, and he loves you enough to discipline you. And discipline is an important aspect of, of teaching. And we're going to see earlier, as I've already hinted, that teaching is a pretty big part of God's instructions here. You know, this isn't just, well, I, I'm glad that you know this, and hopefully the next generations will find out on their own. But let's let's add just a few verses, just a few, through nine, because in verse would, four— way, and Go ahead. I, I would say I'd apologize because I had actually jumped ahead in my thinking. I was thinking of those next verses. But, but please, if you would go ahead. Yes, I thought so. Let's add four through nine. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh— is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. 
You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. That's the end of verse 9. So absolutely, you were uh, referencing Mark 12, uh, among other places where Jesus is talking about, you know, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And then, of course, we have what follows about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. Jesus adds, and your neighbor as yourself. But this yeah. Shema, tell us about the Shema, because that's, that's probably like the earliest creed, I think sometimes people call it, but but it's important. Well, yeah, it's because it, it distinguishes Israel from every other group of peoples. It, it distinguishes them um, because they, they, they believe in a, a single God, not a group of gods, not a collection of gods, not even a, a pair of male and female deities. They believe in the one God who is Yahweh, the Lord. Um, and they, this, this is the heritage that they, that they have, but going all the way back to Abraham, whom we are told believed God and we are, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Uh, and so they, this, this is, and, and it is to this that, that, you know, Jesus is also, um, making that claim and the, the distinction that he makes in, in his teaching among the people is that um, is that he and the Father are one. You know, so there is only one God. But he and the Father are one. That's that's an uh, an important point that, that Jesus makes in his teaching and that is well, emphasized by especially Paul. And I think that makes a lot more sense to the folks of the first century and the folks during the time in which Deuteronomy is is being written or the time in which it was set. You know, we, we have today this understanding that there is one God. Uh, monotheism is uh, pretty well understood around the world. If right. you were to rewind yourself and put yourself in these ancient cultures, the concept that there is only one God would have been unheard of. I mean, today it's like, yeah, there's one God, but then we all argue amongst ourselves over whose interpretation of the one God is right or whether the one God of the Jews is the same as the one God of the Christians or the Muslims, etc. But but this argument that there is only one God is not unheard of. But back then, no, you just – you learn about all these gods. Different cities have yep. gods. Different cultures have gods. And you just put one on the shelf after the other and you pray to them. And, and sometimes they'll do good stuff for you, usually by happen chance, right? And sometimes by mm -hmm. demonic activity. And, and so then maybe you start having a favorite God, et cetera. But Israel, who knows better anyway, the, he, the, Moses or Yahweh in this case is not telling the Israelites anything new. But he's saying, hey, listen, hear, O Israel. Essentially, remember, O Israel. Confess, O Israel. Yahweh is our God, and there's only one Yahweh. And so when you go into the land of the Canaanites, those aren't real gods. And you're absolutely right. Jesus picks up on this because when he comes on the yeah. scene, he knows that people are going to be confused. And, and we've been confused really ever since. Let's be honest. The Trinity is a mystery. But yeah. Jesus says there's only one God. I'm God. The Father's God. The Holy Spirit's God. Yet there are not three gods but one God. 
Uh, and so let's write a big, long creed to try to explain this because we don't understand how that can be. <laughs> yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I, I love this. I love this Shema, this, you know, this early confession. But what I really appreciate then is what happens next, right? So if this is the reality, then this one God, if there's only one, then you owe him all your devotion. Then everything he's taught you, all these words that I command you today shall be on your heart and you need to pass them down to your children. Now, if I can have a little aside, uh, yes. I, I did not watch the big game on Sunday. Uh, no, not my not my thing. But 123.4 million people did. It was the most watched <laughs> in television history. Now, yeah. I, I'm not a big sports fan, but I can tell you this. The at home in the in the in the stadium was packed with fans of the San Francisco 49ers and the Kansas City Chiefs. People loyal to these teams, people who who knew all about the history of these teams, people who wore the colors of these teams. And the question mm-hmm. is, how do people get catechized into being a sports fan? And it's not that their fathers or their mothers or whoever is the primary fan sits them down once a week and reads to them out of the history of the 49ers. It's not like they send them to the one of the assistant coaches of the Chiefs for weekly catechesis where they can learn about what it means to be a sports fan. They don't right. just say, oh, well, you know, when you get older, you get to choose which fan you which team you want to be a fan of. Hardly any parent says that they say, no, you're going to be a fan of the Chiefs. You're going to be a fan of the 49ers. You're going to be a fan of the of the Lions. Poor people. So you could say that they learn because they are catechized in a natural way. As Moses is talking about here, you catechize when you're sitting in the house, when you're walking down the road, when you're lying down, when you rise. They get catechized into being sports fans when they see their parents rooting for them, when they sit with them and watch the games with them, when they see their parents wearing the jerseys and their parents buy them their own jerseys. And yet, brother, when it comes to the faith, why are so many parents just outsourcing this to the church once a week? Yeah, that's a good question. That's a good question because it's a, it has become a serious issue, uh, particularly in our age. I was thinking about that. I was studying through this passage uh, because that's so, that's so apparent through this chapter that that's, that's the issue. How do you raise up your children? What's, what's the proper way to do it? And, and, and what God is saying here is you surround them with the truth. You surround them with my teaching. You, you know, you, it's, part, it's a part of your life um, on a daily basis. I, I find it interesting um, that, um, and of course, you, you, you run into this every now and then, that there are people uh, to this day who wear phylacteries. And I'm sure you're familiar with those, right? And uh, they they they're they're um, uh, usually leather uh, thing things with a little box that contains um, a fragment of scripture in it, and and they literally put this little box on their foreheads, tie it around their heads, and put this little box with scripture in it on their foreheads, and they and they put a similar one um, on the forearm, 
And so they take this passage and they interpret it in a literal way. But it's not meant that way. That's the thing. It very much reminds me of the similar practice of, well, Yahweh says, you shall not misuse the name of Yahweh your God. So they go, well, we'll never say Yahweh again. <laughs> and, and, and when God gets replaced as a generic, we're just going to sl- – we're going to write G hyphen D so that we're not even writing the Lord's name. Now, well, I guess that – yeah, that might pre- prevent some accidental misuses, but it misses the point in the same way putting the phylacteries or, or even on the doorpost of your houses. Now, again – Christians do this, right? Epiphany come around. Some Christians like to write, you know, the little the little incantation on their door. That's fine. As long as you recognize that those things are just um, didactic. They're to teach us. Like an icon, a picture, a painting, a cross. They're to point us to a deeper reality. So I agree with yeah. you wholeheartedly, brother, and I'm glad you brought it up. To keep these commandments isn't just to say, well, he says put it on the doorpost. Well, we better nail something on the doorposts. Well, that's almost superstition. No, it's about right. taking them to the heart so that no matter where you go, they're bound on your hands. They're bound between your eyes. They're, they're even amongst your houses. Think of a house blessing. You know, the yeah. blessing is that you will continue to follow the Lord and the Lord will be with you, which he's already promised. So, no, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, in fact, interestingly, you mentioned the house blessing because there was one time when I was a young pastor and uh, – young couple moved into a house that they had just bought and they they specifically asked me to come over and bless their house and, and there and there was we went through a formal process of that um and the and the reason for it wasn't to go through some some ceremony the reason for it was to dedicate themselves to making their home a place where God is welcome right being reminded of God's presence that is already there, being refocused on God's presence. So, yeah, it's not a bad thing. If I mean, if you want to nail something to your doorpost to remind you of your faith, go for it. But, yeah, I agree with you. Just sort of tying some uh, a leather box on your head uh, without, and I guess we should make this clear, without also dedicating these things to your heart. There's nothing wrong with the ceremony necessarily as long as right. that ceremony is pointing uh, to to where the reality is, which is in Christ. Uh, I, I want to, um, and, and Jews who do that obviously would reject Christ, but I want to add some more verses to our conversation, starting with uh, verse 10. And when Yahweh your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget Yahweh, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is Yahweh your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples around you, for Yahweh your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of Yahweh your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. All right, we'll just tiptoe into this a little bit as we get closer to our break. But 
there's a conditional covenant here, right? I mean, th- th- this isn't the same as our salvation covenant. When the when Yahweh brings you into the land that He yes. swore to you, yes. you need to remember Him. Yes, yes. I, and I just I love the the language that's used here because He emphasizes the point that everything that they gain by conquering the land is a gift from Him. It's not something that they have earned. It's not something that they have uh, built. It's it's you know, they simply God is simply hand, handing it over to them. And uh, and and now and then when they're enjoying the the, the fruits of uh, of their their victories, um, they need to remember the one who gave it to them, who provided for them. You know, one illustration that just popped into my head, so forgive me if it doesn't actually make sense by the time I get done with it, but (laughs) I I could imagine going like down to Florida on the Gulf Coast and you find this great condo and everything's included and you you show up and the food's included and everybody treats you like a million bucks and you walk around and you really feel like you're really – and you start to believe somehow that you're the owner, that somehow – you're super wealthy, that somehow that this beach all belongs to you, that all this food you're entitled to. And then, of course, the end of the week comes up and the bill is due <laughs> and, you, and you realize, oh, I was just pretending. Well, in this case, you know, in this case, God is saying, I'm going to make you possessors of this land. But when you get in there, you're going to kind of forget that you were slaves in Egypt, that you don't deserve this. That in fact, other peoples who I have destroyed because of their great sin against me are the only mm-hmm. reason why you even have this. And so don't think that if you were to turn away from me in sin, that somehow you're going to be guaranteed. And I think that applies to us today. We, we often have this, even though this is not a part of Lutheran doctrine, we have this sort of once saved, always saved understanding that, that because God has been so good to us, we can now go off and live however we please and deny him and blaspheme him. And then yeah, he'll just have to take us back at the end. And, yeah, and I think that's a dangerous position. Yes. Yes, it is. Um, you're, you're, uh, I mean, the, the Apostle Paul talks about the distinction between the old Adam and the new man and, and how important that is. And, and this is, you know, what happens when, when you just, uh, backslide. There's an interesting old-fashioned term. When you when you backslide, you're you're allowing the old Adam to to take over again, um, and uh, denying the new man. Um, but and for Israel, you know the 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 clearest evidence of this was when was when they started permitting the false gods of the Canaanites. They started, you know, first at first they put up with it, and then they adopt them, and uh, and and then they suffer the consequences. Oh yes, absolutely, and 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 that's God knows that's going to happen, and that's the struggle, and that's the pain, because we have two things that are kind of going on here. One, we have God saying, destroy these people completely. Completely wipe right. them and their gods off the face of the earth, and we're going to get into more of that in the following chapters. But uh, we, we've already touched on it a little bit. 
But then he says, don't follow after their gods. And, and it's kind of like, well, wait a minute. If they do or if they were going to do what he said and completely wipe them off, there wouldn't be gods left to serve, right? And yet Bingo. God God <laughs> recognizes that, well, that's that's not going to actually be the case. And yet, and yet God doesn't just destroy them off the face of the earth from the get-go in light of his foreknowledge, but out of his love, he gives them the law. The law is good. Yes. Yeah, that's right. And and if they and if they follow it, they will do well. If they and if they raise their children up in it, they will do well. Because once again, what we what we see happens is that the next generation, and that's coming up in the verses ahead, uh, the, the next generation then rises up without the knowledge um, that they need to have um, in order to to um, to maintain. Uh, their position in the relationship with God. Well, I'll tell you what, why don't we take a break and we're going to think about all of this, folks. You think about it with us too. And when we come back, we will keep on going through Deuteronomy chapter six. Pastor Yar and I will see you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today is the Reverend Terry Yar, pastor, retired, sort of, but serving the saints at Our Savior Lutheran Church in Chillicothe, Ohio. I learned during the break that Chillicothe is a Swanee word that means principal town, 1803, the first capital of Ohio. You learn something new all the time. Folks, don't forget that you can... Con- Go ahead, brother. What's that? I said, and, and, and it was capital twice, actually. Oh, yes. really? Really? Oh, okay. Yeah. I do know that Chillicothe, I think Missouri is the home of sliced bread, but you guys don't get that distinction. So, <laughs> hey, uh, folks, we're going to be right back in the Bible in just a minute. But don't forget, you can reach out to me at PastorBoo at gmail.com. You can find me on Facebook, too. Uh, or uh, you can call with your comments, questions, complaints. It doesn't matter to me. 1-800-730-2727. I'd just love to hear from you. Now, getting back to our text, brother. Yeah, so we were just in verses 10 through, oh, 15. And Mm -hmm. he reminds them of the covenant, right? When Yahweh your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give to you. And he talks about all these things that they did not work for and yet receive. Uh, The thing that popped in my head, and, and maybe we don't want to linger in it too long, 
But I think about it, and, I, and I'm actually reflecting a little bit with my conversation with Dr. Bierman back at the beginning of the month on our first First Friday, and that is, you know, we as Americans tend to think about things in terms of rights and entitlements, but not just that we should sit around and receive things for free, but the American work ethic, the Protestant work ethic is one where we don't want charity. We want to work for all our things and and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and two different mindsets of entitlement versus hard work end up battling it out in the cultural sphere. But here, and, and again, I know that the connection is tenuous, but, but God is reminding them that really nobody lives independent of other people. And certainly no one lives independent of his blessing. Do you think that maybe this American pull yourself up by your bootstraps? I don't want any charity kind of mindset sometimes gets in the way of understanding the gospel, which is really not our work at all? Oh, I, I think so. Um, and I, I think that's evident in the religious philosophy that you hear from a lot of people, uh, people who have a lot of knowledge and people who have little. The religious philosophy that that is basically, uh, let's strive to be good and God will be okay with us. Um, and in which basically makes our relationship with God a, a consequence of our own behavior, uh, rather than his gift of grace. And the reason why I wanted to bring it up in this context is because, you know, he is laying out a consequence in the sense that if you turn away from me, then you shouldn't expect blessings from me. But you're absolutely yeah. right when we emphasize that our salvation is dependent upon not us working hard enough in order to sort of appease an angry God, but rather the pure gift of Christ's sacrifice that then covers our sins, freely gives us forgiveness, but now in which we live a life that's in response to that. So, so when we're on the ground here, it's not as though he's giving them this choice. He's really just saying, listen, you are going into this land. You are getting it from me. Just don't forget me. And the, I think the extra emphasis is because God knows where this is going. I believe so, yes. I believe so. I think he's looking toward the future, and he's laying down a precaution for his people. But we see a lot of that uh, in Scripture, and that is the— uh, we might even say prophetic uh, types of, of references where uh, where um, a perspective of the future is being addressed. Dig into more about that. Explain that a little more. Okay. Okay. Well, uh, the um, I'm not sure I can really explain it. Um, <laughs> or don't. <laughs> hey, it, you know what? I'm just a host, not a cop. You don't have to do it. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> well, it, it's a, it, uh, the, the proclamations of, of the prophets, for instance, and especially the, the, the individual, uh, their individual dealings with, with, uh, with people when they uh, predict that certain things are going to happen and they do. Um, prophet goes to, I'm, I'm trying to think of an example, uh, prophet goes to a, a king and warns him that, um, that, that his actions are going to bring about um, God's, um, God's judgment. Um, and, uh, and so what's the point 
if, if that's if he if he's seeing that in terms of perspective that this king's actions are going to bring about God's judgment, um, then what is the point? Well, the point is to give a warning so that it might be heeded. Right. Um, now I understand exactly what you're what you're saying because you know we struggle with this in general with our finite feeble human minds that God can both have foreknowledge and yet understand that we need these incarnate expressions of faith. That's why he sends Jesus. That's why we have the sacrificial system. But he says he warns us against action and even and evidenced by the scriptures testimony will relent of disaster when people turn. But if God in his foreknowledge knows that if he warns you, you will turn, he, he wouldn't just say, well, I'm not going to warn them because I know that they, they will turn if I do. So he warns them so that they will turn, and yet he knows if they won't, and it's just it gets into our head. And, and here's, here's what I say, and brother, you can correct me or maybe spin it, but we don't want a God that we can fit into our head. We don't want a God that makes perfect yes. sense to us. You don't want a God that operates in such a way that he always agrees with you because then that's not the one true God. And so when we look at these seemingly paradoxical kind of things where God both knows your heart and yet gives you the opportunity to repent, we see them just as he's revealed them to us. And that is discipline of those he loves for our yes. benefit. And I, and I think sometimes we just have to leave it at that. But but wouldn't you agree that that's kind of something hard for us to get our mind around? Yes, it is. It is. Uh, and, and that's the point. Uh, and that is that we there, there are certain issues we can understand, but the most basic ones are things that are really beyond our comprehension, our comprehension. I mean, just just the thought that 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 one man could take on the sins of the world. And die carrying those sins and paying for them uh, with his own life. Um, just so happens that that man is the God man, of course, Jesus. Right. But just the idea of that is beyond comprehension. And and there are many people who, because they can't comprehend it, they they reject it. Before we move on to any more text, I just want to highlight verse fifteen again because this one this one's a hard one. For Yahweh your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of Yahweh your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. So a couple of different, I guess, things need to be pointed out. The first of which, and we've covered it before, but it's always worth being reminded, uh, what does it mean exactly that God is a jealous God? It's not an envious God. It's a jealous God. What, What does that mean? Yes. Well, that's that's an interesting point. And I'm looking at something I, I looked up earlier uh, this morning. It, it's uh, the close of the commandments, uh, Martin Luther's close of the commandments. Um, and it he he goes to Exodus uh, 20 and he's, he answers this question. What does God say about all these commandments? He says, I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. And then he and then he goes on punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me 
but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and to keep my commandments. And, and Luther then says, what, under what does this mean? He says, God threatens to punish all who break these commandments. Therefore, we should fear his wrath and not do anything against them. But he promises grace and every blessing to all who keep these commandments. Therefore, we should also love and trust in him and gladly do what he commands. Um, now, that, that's, a, that's a, a, the close to the commandments, of course. Um, and, and the jealous God is, is one who will not allow his play, place to be taken by anyone else. That's the point. That's, that's the jealous God. We won't allow his place to be taken by anyone else. And, and, and the reason for that is, is basically twofold, I would suggest. One is that because there isn't any other God who's real. <laughs> so we start there. There isn't any other God who's real. And, and the second one is that um, he deserves the number one, the first place in our lives. And, and so in that, sense, in that sense, he is jealous. But that doesn't mean that he's selfish. That's, and that's, I think, where people misunderstand. That they look at a word like jealous and they think that, that it implies selfishness. No, it implies uh, it implies um, uh, the the uh, the unconditional love of one who is exclusively able to bring blessing to our lives. Yeah, I mean. Jealous, and, and I think we've conflated them with envy. Today, most of the time, it's used in the same way. Envy is to you know want something that someone else has. Jealousy is to be guarding against losing what you already have. So uh, a jealous girlfriend, for instance, might be one who doesn't want her boyfriend to be taken away from her, whereas an envious right. girlfriend is someone who wants someone else's boyfriend, perhaps, to use some sort of silly examples that really don't apply to God. But in this case, when he says he's a jealous God, just as you said, he doesn't want to give you up. That's a good thing. As you said, it's not yes. selfish. It's for our benefit. But his yes. jealousy is such that if you leave him, if you go after other gods, then what's going to happen? Well, now you're, you're, you're basically rejecting the love and the grace and the mercy he has for you. So what's left? The anger. Anger of Yahweh your God. And you will yeah. be destroyed off the face of the earth. Make no mistake, your life is eternal whether you're on the earth or not. So that's not a good thing. But that warning is necessary for a people, for us, who um, as human beings— who are <laughs> sinful uh, to remind us who's in control because we're much more likely to be, as he warned before, the ones who walk into this beautiful land and almost immediately forget how we got there and why we're there and just think that all of this is what we deserve. They do it. We continue to do it. God is right to warn us against it. And and I guess I think there's one thing more we need to remember and I, think that was something you might have been aiming at initially, and that is that the anger of God is righteous. It's, it's righteous. Um, and so he has a righteous anger against, against, some, uh, against things that are wrong, against, against sin. 
And so we see that demonstrated, for instance, in, in the Great Flood. What does he do? He destroys the entire world um, in his righteous wrath. But he saves eight people. God is, yeah, you're absolutely right, righteous. God is righteous. How do we know that God's anger is righteous? Well, because it's God. And, and that's what we've forgotten. Well, yes. well, God says he, he hates sin. Well, hates bad. Not if God does it. <laughs> well, well, God yeah. says he's angry. Well, that's not sinful. Well, how do you know? Because it's God. God cannot yeah. sin. And, and God can also exercise things whereby if we did the same thing, we'd be sinful. So our jealousy, for instance, is often from a sinful point of view. Our angle is, anger is often from a sinful place. Uh, our, um, even our discipline of our own children sometimes can come from a, a, an angry place, a sinful place. So we heed God's we, – we look at God and we say, A, he can exercise some of the – what we might call emotions or characteristics of humans, but in a, in a – he's just really condescending to us when he explains them in these human terms. God is completely and utterly holy. But the fact that yes. he can destroy us off the face of the earth is not something that is given up in the Old Testament. Jesus himself says – you know, we should fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Exactly. Now, this exactly. isn't to say that the Christian life or even the Hebrew life before Christ was one of just constantly being under the thumb of an angry God. No, these things are for our good. They only sound negative and they only feel negative and they only are bad when we refuse to realize who's in control. And that's essentially, I think, what God's doing. Yes. Brother, let me add some text to our conversation. I'm going to read 16 through 19, just a few more. Okay. Moses continues, You shall not put Yahweh your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. You shall diligently keep the commandments of Yahweh your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of Yahweh, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that Yahweh swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all of your enemies from before you, as Yahweh has promised. You see, God is not giving us these things so that he can just dictate every bit of our lives, even though he has the right to do it if he wanted to, but he does it mm -hmm. out of his great love, and, and it's good for us. Yes, yes. Interesting, the use of that term uh, in, in its presence, the, uh, the uh, Massah, which, uh, which if you go back uh, to Exodus, um, is the occasion um, on which uh, Moses is instructed to strike the rock to provide water for the Israelites. And the place is called, there's two terms that, it, that it's given, but the first one is Massah, which, which means testing, because... The Israelites were testing God, and and that was that was a big mistake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was back in Exodus seventeen, right? You I mean yeah? The, it right. says he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the Meribah. quarreling of the people of Israel. Meribah is the uh, is the quarreling word. Massah is the testing word. Yeah, I mean, yeah. and I love how Moses. And remember, he's instructing them to be catechetical with their children, teach their children the faith. And what is he doing? He's being a, a, a patient catechist. This is a strong sermon, but he's giving them examples from history. Look at how you tested him at Massah. Here's the thing. 
did these people that are listening to his his message actually test God at Massah and Meribah? And the answer is no. If any of them were around, they would have been tiny, tiny, tiny. This is a whole new generation. But he's still using them as a collective whole to say, look, you belong to your people. And your people were rebellious and disloyal to Yahweh. And the same sin that flows through your father's hearts flows through yours too. And therefore, it's not that they're being punished for the sins of their fathers, but it's the same consequences if you should test the Lord. I, I think it's a powerful example from Moses. Well, yes, yes. And going back to that, uh, what I quoted from uh, uh, from Luther's, uh, uh, with, with Luther uh, set before us as the uh, conclusion to the commandments, uh, the reference there is is in the suffering or the, the hardship uh, coming to the future generations uh, comes to those who hate me. In other words, the, right. your future gen- you hate me, your children will hate me, your grandchildren will hate me, your great-grandchildren will hate me. And, and that's, that's the warning. I'm glad you put a point on that because it's not as though God says, for generations I'm going to force people to hate me. He just right. tells – he just lists out the consequences of sin and rebellion against God. No one's going to be raising right. their children to trust and believe in God. If they themselves have rebelled and therefore the sins of that, their father, their sins there are going to perpetuate throughout the generations. And I think that's what makes the following verses so important. And those were the ones that really focused my thoughts um, when I was when I was doing the study, because well, I was pick up. thinking about. Uh, I'm sorry, please. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was just going to say, well, let's add them. Let's add them. Let's go ahead and add okay. the whole rest okay. of it. Because you're absolutely right. We're going to get some catechetical instructions here, and but we're also going to uh, – it's going to turn the tone a little bit. All right. Uh, verse 20. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that Yahweh our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and Yahweh brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And Yahweh showed us signs and wonders and great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household right before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And Yahweh commanded us to do all these statutes to fear Yahweh our God for our good always that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteous for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before Yahweh our God as he has commanded us. So, yeah, I love that image, right? Hey, Dad, what's the point of the commandments? And, and then he gives that explanation. Yes, yes, that's right. And it, 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 just, it, it, just, it just laid on my heart when I was reading this, this passage because I put it all together the whole chapter and, and it what it what it came down to for me was we need to we need to teach our coming generations, the, our children and our grandchildren, we need to instruct them um, in in the ways of God, his his law, but also his his grace and his mercy. And if we fail to do so, um, then we then we've got a problem. That failure to do so is 
not new to our culture by any stretch of the imagination, but it certainly is something we're continuing to contend with. And that's sort of why I started the way I did at the beginning with this reminder that parents, it is 100% your responsibility to raise your children in the faith. Your pastor, the church community, the church, we're all here to help. We're all here to help according to the fourth commandment, right? But it is your job, your vocation, your blessing, your gift from God. No one else in the world has the relationship with your children and by extension your grandchildren than you do. Yes. So we honor yes. the fourth commandment by helping them do what they're supposed to do. But so many parents, brother, and I know you've experienced this too, or you can tell me if you haven't, have just abdicated oh, yeah. their roles. They just give it up. Oh, yes. I see the consequences of that all the time. And it's it really it's heartbreaking. And in uh, and the only and the only comfort I guess I can I can take is that is that God is able to overcome our weaknesses. Oh, indeed, indeed. You know, and there is a role for the pastor to step in where the parents are lack, but he does that again in service to the parents, not as some you know disciplinarian, and certainly not to take it away from them. You know, the church is here to guide and build strong families in the Lord. And and that's exactly what Moses is telling the people as they go into this promised land. Well, friend, we only have a, a couple of minutes left in the program, but I want to give all those minutes to you. Any any last uh, any last points that you want to make? Well, I guess, the, I, I guess more or less to summarize it, what we're experiencing today is we're living in a culture which uh, which serves to hinder us, um, almost a stumbling block, you might say, but to hinder us from doing what what we really should be doing, and that is freeing up the the next generations um, in in the ways of the Lord. And uh, it's a struggle for us, and it's a, it's a struggle that that uh, sent, has got to send us to the throne of God in prayer, on our knees, um, asking forgiveness and seeking his strength. Amen to that, brother. And and that's a great takeaway that, you know, it's not too late either, right? You know, even if your children right. are all grown, reach out to them in love, tell them of the love of Christ, you know, and, and, and you know, I, I get it. There's, there's so many adults will come to me and say, you know, my adult children have, left the church and they're distraught and you know they, they may they may quote you know well it, raise up a child in the way he should go and when he's old he shall not depart from it and the answer is there's so much in this world as our guest is saying that is running interference trying to be a stumbling block to god's work i, I think that's just inspire us more to lean more and more on god's grace ask for forgiveness and keep going confidently forward as we strive to live in this land that he's given us now and in hopes of that promised land to come, Zion of the new heavens and the new earth. Well, I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Terry Yar. He's the pastor of Our Savior Lutheran Church in Chillicothe, Ohio, the principal city. Pastor, thanks for being on the show. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a joy to be here. I look forward to having you back. And, uh, you know, don't, uh, don't get too uh, rusty in retirement. <laughs> I know you won't. They're going to keep you busy. 
Hey, folks, oh, tomorrow, <laughs> go ahead. T- tomorrow, it's Wednesday. It's Ash Wednesday tomorrow. Uh, but tomorrow and every Wednesday in Lent, Thy Strong Word will be preempted by organ performances. So I hope you enjoy those. But be sure to come back on Thursdays as I'm joined this Thursday by the Reverend Bruce Tim, who takes us through Chapter 7. In chapter 7, God through Moses gives instructions to the Israelites as they're about to enter the promised land. And he talks a little bit about what we've already mentioned earlier, and that is that God commands them to destroy all the nations that they will dispossess, to not make treaties with them, to not intermarry, to certainly not be led away to serve their gods. And he assures them of his love for them, right? So we have to read what we've talked about today in light of that also. He loves them as a special people, not because of their numerical strength, but because of his faithfulness to the covenant he made with their ancestors. So what that's about and a lot more will be on Thursday. So until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray. Father, keep us in thy strong word.